welcome to the November 2023 episode of our Bridging the Gaps podcast series, produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum, or EHFF. I'm Caroline White. And I'm Sean O'Conline. This month, David Somick and Caroline spoke with Professor Jane Gray, who is Professor of Sociology at Maynooth University. They discussed two research projects that Professor Gray has worked on over the past few years. These projects explored the reasons behind the varying resilience of different households during times of crisis in Ireland and elsewhere in Europe. We'll go over now to the interview. We're delighted for this podcast, which is, as you know, shared between FASTA and EHFF, on this occasion to invite Dr. Jane Gray from Maynooth University. She's Professor of Sociology there, and we are especially interested in a project that she managed or led on social resilience. And uh, it's clear that because of our interest uh, through the We All Hub and so forth, that we very much want to know how people are feeling and how they're experiencing the turbulence that have been happening in recent years. And this is even pre-COVID. But but the floor is yours, Jane. We're both very interested to hear uh, how the project went, what the outcome was, and what your view is now, looking back on it. The rescue project that you referred to was funded by the European Commission's Framework 7 programme. It was a very international project with nine countries involved and it was led by Professor Markus Promberger at the Institute for Employment Research in Nuremberg in Germany. The countries range from Finland to Ireland to Spain and Portugal, Poland and Greece, the United Kingdom, Germany and Turkey. And the brief of the project was to try to understand household practices of resilience in the wake of the financial crisis. Alongside that project, I also received funding from the Irish Research Council, co-funded by the Department of Social Protection which was researching people's experience of the Family Income Supplement, or FIS, which has since been replaced by the Working Family Payment. The Department of Social Protection were interested in learning about people's experiences of FIS. We linked to the European project to try to understand how FIS promoted household resilience. The first project ran from 2014 to 2017, and the second one ran from 2015 to 2017. I was the national coordinator on the rescue project, and I also had responsibility for the work package on longitudinal biographical aspects of social resilience, which dovetailed particularly with my own interest in biographical and life course approaches to understanding society and social change. The postdoctoral researchers who worked with, we, with me were Dr. Jenny Dagg on the Rescue Project and Dr. Cleona Rooney on the Irish Project. So that's all the administrative detail about the project. So what was interesting, I think, about the focus on resilience at the time was that what's thought of as deficit understanding of poverty and hardship, thinking of people who are poor as this being a consequence of deficits on their parts, such as inadequate education or not enough money or other resources. The whole idea behind the concept of resilience was to try to understand the resources that might help people to overcome poverty. We were concerned, I think, in the rescue project a bit about the possibility that the deficit understanding of poverty and disadvantage was being replaced by a heroic understanding of poverty that places the burden on individuals and individual households to get themselves out of poverty. In the course of the project, many of us tried to develop an understanding of resilience as a social phenomenon, that you have to look at the resources that are available to households in order to understand how resilient they are. 
which we can define roughly as bouncing back from an experience of adversity, perhaps doing better than they did before, but at least doing as well as they did before. So our focus was on the room for manoeuvre that allows some people to be more resilient than others. So that was the kind of framework, if that makes sense. And in terms of what kind of results you found, I suppose, obviously, as you say, as you point out, the first project is very much a European one, but the second one, Irish based. I just wondered if there were any kind of headline that came out of that you thought you could share? Well, for myself, first of all, my specialty was in focusing on the biographical and longitudinal aspects. And I suppose there were a number of things that came together in terms of thinking about how people's life experiences and the stage of life they were at and how those and how the age that they were intersected to either create a situation where they had sort of accumulated vulnerabilities to hardship or accumulated capacities and resources to cope with hardship. And I think for me, the thing that really stood out was in the focus of my own research was the way in which It seems to me people can cope with one hardship. For example, in the context of the recession, people may be able to cope with unemployment to some extent and may be able to mobilize whatever resources that they have to address the challenge and to to recover from that. But for many of the people that we interviewed, I think in both projects, what tended to happen was that one crisis tended to accumulate and build on multiple crises. So if people are coping with loss of employment and that alongside, for example, experiencing family violence or experiencing chronic illness or challenges having to do with other members of their family. For many people, unfortunately, there is this kind of perfect storm of crises that they are confronted with that come together at particular moments in their lives that make it more challenging for them to be resilient. So I think that for me really stood out that um, and I think in terms of social policy, it's it's an important finding because a lot of the policies that we devise address one kind of problem that an individual or a household may face without recognising that very often individuals and households are facing multiple problems simultaneously or multiple challenges simultaneously, depending on things like where they are, what stage of life that they're at, what kind of past experiences they've had, what kind of intergenerational uh, context they're living in. For example, in in the other project, in the Irish project, Having an adult child living at home was a big challenge for many um, of the poor households where we interviewed a participant. So, And many people, especially in the Irish case, also were coping with chronic illness of one family member or multiple family members, or they were coping with family members with disabilities, or they were, you know, for example, lone parents. And there's a lot of focus on the experiences of lone parents in the Irish context sort of trying to address um, the challenges of being a lone parent and the challenges associated with, you know, a crisis like the recession or I suppose the subsequent crises that we have confronted subsequently, like the pandemic. I think it's that it's that coming together of challenges and crises that maybe really make it difficult for people to be resilient. So on the other more positive side, I think that the 
the European research uh, really focused on things that in some cases were not particularly surprising. So if people have family members, if they have neighbours, if they have communities that they can turn to and draw on for help and support, that's clearly something that allows people to to cope and adapt maybe long enough to be resilient in the, in the long term. There was also some interesting findings about how people perhaps who have long family histories of, of living in, in disadvantaged circumstances maybe have more cultural skills and social skills that allow them to to cope with a sudden crisis, whereas people, paradoxically, people perhaps who've never experienced those kind of crises don't really know where to turn, don't know how to mobilise resources, don't know what kind of state and community resources are available to them, so they may be challenged in the short term, but of course, people like that then may are more likely to have economic savings and other kinds of resources that can help them perhaps in the longer run as well. Um, we also, I think, found, and this was particularly maybe not so much in the Irish case, but in some of the other European cases, there was a lot of evidence on access to resources in common. So not just things like welfare payments, but other kinds of public resources, access uh, to um, sort of shared facilities that people were able to draw on to to, um, to, to cope and perhaps also be resilient. But I think there's a um, maybe I'm talking a lot here, so so uh, jump in. I think there one of the things that that was really important was to try to distinguish between sort of coping and adaptation and resilience, because in the long run, the sort of getting by, the grind of coping, of managing uh, a lot of the the research showed, you know, that this is very time consuming. It's exhausting. And in itself, if you're working really hard to cope from day to day, that drains resources as well that you might have available for resilience. So there was this tension, I think, between, yes, people are very creative and adaptive in terms of, you know, drawing on resources, finding resources. Also, this idea of shifting risks, you know, maybe doing without certain kinds of things in order to be able to keep going. But in the long run, that is a drain on people's resources without help from the state, without help from some kind of common uh, good that that uh, that probably would mitigate against resilience. So I think we all of our findings, you know, identified this kind of tension between you know, people's capacities for resilience and, and what made pe- people have the resources that they needed to be resilient. But on the other hand, the strain that using up those resources created, which in the long term, if, if things didn't change, might actually make them less capable of resilience in the longer term. I hope all that makes a bit of sense. No, absolutely. Yes, this question of capacity is very mm. interesting, isn't it? And I think what struck me when you were explaining is this difficulty for social policy isn't it to to step out of the siloed approach which is so evident in many I mean in my area of health for example it's exactly that where for years really we've been constrained by the fact that we don't look outside the health silo and uh, recognize the obvious connections uh, between things but um I've got a number of questions also <laughs> I'd like to ask, but Caroline, would you like to step in perhaps and give an initial impression? 
Sure, yes. Thanks, David. Yes, it just seems like such an interesting and vital topic, uh, what you've been researching, Jane, and, and I'm very interested to hear both the things that were maybe a little more predictable and then the more surprising things as well. What you mentioned about having a perfect storm of crises and how that can be particularly <laughs> difficult. I mean, I suppose in a way one could predict that, but still, it's uh, the way it's like you know, the sum of the parts adding up to more than one month might expect. I'd be very, I'd be curious about your mention of access to common resources, public resources and shared facilities and how that has been helpful for some people. And would you be able to um, give a few examples of that? That would interest me a lot. I think that's that that was one place where there was a, some variation across the country case studies. So in Ireland and the UK, there's much more focus on sort of formal help through social welfare services, as there is in other countries too, but in particularly perhaps in the Central European countries, there was a lot of interest in things like access to you know, common land, uh, maybe access to foraging, access to fishing and hunting uh, in the Finnish case, for example. So access to, to uh, physical environmental resources. Uh, and then I suppose also if you expand the understanding of public or common resources, it would include things like access to community services, community groups, um, uh, you know, uh, charitable resources and so on. So I suppose what my colleagues were doing was really expanding the idea of the public to include resources that you might not uh, normally include. I mean, I can think of one example in the Irish case. We uh, did our research mainly in, the, in we, we did it in the Midlands area. And one of the things that became very clear was the way in which if families had access to turf to heat their houses, whether it was through some kind of family connection, and that was usually the access or perhaps even if they had a, a plot themselves having access to labor and uh, machinery that could help them to harvest the turf, that this many of them spoke of this as something that was really important to them as, you know, providing them with the assurance that they could heat their houses. And of course, then that's something that is very uh, relevant or topical, I suppose, in terms of sustainability today, too, uh, with, with, the, with all of the concerns that we have about just transition and and climate change. So that might be an example, Caroline, of the kinds of the kinds of things that we were we were looking at in the study. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's very interesting. And um, your example of the turf is really, as you mentioned, it's it sort of highlights the kinds of challenges in terms of meeting our environmental needs and goals and at the same time making sure everybody has what they need and you know if we are effectively closing off access to a commons in the sense of the turf then obviously we're going to need to think, I would say, of opening up access in other ways uh, to make sure that people are well compensated. And I can really see why this is a very emotional, pressing issue for a lot of people. And I'll, maybe I'll pass back to you, David, in a second. I just wanted to mention one thing. I, I, I loved the mention. I found it was fascinating of foraging and like really basic, well, basic, but very physical concepts of commons, as well as the more sort of obvious ones, maybe to us growing up in, in Ireland or the yes. UK, 
And I, I find that very interesting. And um, as I'm sure you know, uh, there's the work of Eleanor Ostrom about commons around the world and uh, how they've been managed in different ways and all kinds of interesting ways to manage them have been gradually developed over centuries in some cases. Uh, very fascinating. And, and I, I just, by coincidence, I just recently saw Agnes Varda's film, The Gleaners, I suppose you call it in English. Um, you might be familiar with that. And it's just thoughtful look at people in France, this is 20 years ago, various people were making use of commons in different ways to, to help to survive and very thoughtful and interesting. I'll pass back to David in case you have any comments, David. Sure, yeah. I mean, we've had contact in our research with Cormac Russell, you know, this whole notion of asset-based community development. I suppose that kind of underlines the point that there are resources there if they can be mobilised. But of course, for individuals who are struggling, it's a kind of lottery, isn't it? Whether or not those kinds of things are available in communities, yes. or whether people are isolated and have to struggle. And certainly as someone who's worked in mental health and as a therapist, of course, that's why I raised the question of capacity. People can only do so much and then they feel they're sinking, really. It's very difficult to overcome despair unless you have support. And I have to say, um, again, it's so much dependent on current politics, isn't it? I mean, we've watched with some dismay how the right-wing government in the UK has really turned the clock back in a way, and there's a much harsher approach. Again, just like you were saying, this notion of expecting people to pull themselves up by the bootstrap, rather than ignoring the real needs they have for support, is very distressing. But yeah. So I guess as a more positive side to that, you know, the kind of work that both Caroline and I are interested in is how best to mobilise those community assets and to take the temperature really of people in it has to be place-based to some extent doesn't it because the context is so important but certainly looking at the all-island hub that we're working on to try and get people to challenge the economic model and and look to alternatives to that i think it, it's about accentuating the positive in the sense of looking for assets that can be mobilized but of course it doesn't solve the problem of, of the severely disadvantaged I, this, i'm very well aware in the mental health field how how things add up and again that's back to the siloed approach isn't it so mm -hmm. many people in uh, who are mental health professionals just see it in the narrow focus of health rather than recognizing how important employment income and community support are to uh, supporting people who don't have the capacity to to manage generally uh, they're right at the bottom end of the scale i guess but it's uh, it's very challenging isn't it? it is it is indeed and i mean i think there's always a tension between targeting supports and then and then creating the kinds of resources that we've been talking about so for example if you target resorts to particular community organizations or groups you know that has a positive effect maybe for that group to some extent but then it has the sort of paradoxical effect of cutting that group off from the wider community if that makes sense I'm not bringing in so what ideally what you would do is you would you would bring everybody within a place or within a community together rather than sort of saying well this community group or this organization is just for this particular purpose I feel that that that's something also that we found when looking at, at community resources 
I don't know how much it's been replicated. There was an interesting project in Somerset, a small town of Froome, where, in fact, it was the primary care doctors, in fact, set up a, a community a service where simply they train people very briefly, a couple of hours training, to share with passers-by, you know, what resources there were for people. Yes. Um, and it yes. produced a very interesting community network which worked really it was a, a very interesting uh, idea yeah it didn't require so much investment really yes. uh, centrally uh, but it, obviously it required you know the the substrate you know a willing group who, yes. who had the vision to do that and people could have then got it you know and were very pleased but again it's very difficult these innovative things to replicate you know because yes. the context is so different yes. i did want to just finish by getting on a soapbox i have which is about value systems mm -hmm. um, and the issue really of how in terms of looking at social change and uh, and what we could possibly do to influence things for the better is um is whether people even recognize how important uh, value systems are and of course this again interlinks with uh, what Caroline and I and others are interested in in terms of, of the current economic model which is really has very negative uh, value systems in it what on earth do we do to try and help shift it turn, yes. turn the uh, oil tank as it were yes yes I don't know we did um, look we did find that people who had experienced very significant sort of turning points in their lives, often referred to maybe maybe a kind of almost a religious style, not so much a conversion, but a shift in their value system. So people who had been on a particular path and understood their lives in a certain way and then, you know, experienced some devastating crisis that they had to recover from, often spoke about that or understood it in terms of a shift in their in their value systems and the you know, maybe, for example, becoming more religious or becoming more focused on the environment or something like that. But again, I sort of do, while that was very noticeable, I would have some concerns about sort of trying to extrapolate that onto a wider community or societal scale. I can't see that as being as as having as having uh, relevance really uh, at, a, at a wider community or societal scale. But um yeah, I mean, you you wouldn't want to say that people need to experience a, a severe hardship in order for their values to change. That wouldn't be the way you'd want to go. No, goodness me, I think it much more in terms of education yes. and, and how one can promote the kind of things that, that small children will relate to in primary school, but then afterwards they somehow get eroded, you know, by, I mean... Uh, my teenage grandchildren on their screens all the time there's insidiously being uh, influenced by mm, a culture mm. that really is not friendly uh, to humanity anyway I mustn't go on about this Caroline would you like to finish off really I'm, I'm most grateful Jane for this conversation but I think Caroline you should have the last word Thanks, David. Yes, that was just a very interesting conversation and just to pick up on a couple of points that were made. One thing that struck me was, as Jane mentioned, the tension that can be created when you target supports and then end up actually inadvertently cutting off 
other people from the community are making a two-tier <laughs> thing happen which wasn't intended and so on which makes me think about the whole topic of universal basic services and the, and income and whether you have a opinion about about those things i'd be very interested in that and then more generally the idea of bringing in value systems and i think the point that you made jane about uh, how we don't want to impose a crisis on people so that they look at their values i mean that's completely absurd it's to me that ties in with what you said earlier about the individual kind of heroic um, mm -hmm. attitude where we all have to just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps uh, as opposed to having a more community-led approach. So yeah, if you have any final comments or if there's anything vital that we've left out that you'd like to touch on as well, um, that would be really good as well. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Caroline. I don't feel very competent to argue very specifically about things like, you know, for example, universal basic income or something like that. I do think I would I would speak generally uh, that the finding from our project is that, yes, we have to try to ensure that there are widespread common and public resources available to people. I, I'm also struck, though, I mean, when I was in the course of doing the research of uh, going back to a much older study, I think it was done on American families. I'm afraid I can't remember the author off the top of my head. And and uh, she said, you know what? Families need to be resilient. They just need more money, <laughs> which has struck me as a very sort of pithy way of saying that resilience, it's important. I think it, there, I, I certainly would continue to argue that thinking about people as agents and not thinking about poverty as a deficit, which is you, you were saying, David, about sort of is linked into what you were referring to this idea that somehow these people have deficits, they're inadequate, they need to be, you know, shaped up. That I, I do think that there is uh, strength in thinking about social resilience insofar as it sort of focuses in on the agency and the resources that people already have and that they're already using and how do you support people in, in mobilizing those resources. But then on the other hand, I do think adequate public services and adequate systems of social welfare are clearly a big part of the story as well. That was Professor Jane Gray of Maynooth University Sociology Department being interviewed by David Somek and Caroline White. Ormwechus to Professor Gray and to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share the link on social media and bigi afaramach for our next podcast, which should go online at the end of December. Mm -hmm.